Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Our Connect Sessions, episode 114. On this last show of the year, Ken, Donna, and I will be sharing some of our favorite episodes and favorite highlights from our conversations in 2017. It's been quite a year, guys. It's been quite a year. It's really been a year unlike any other in any of our lives, I think, in not necessarily great ways. But the podcast has been wonderful. <laughs> the podcast has been inversely proportional to the rest of the world. Uh, <laughs> right. it's, it's been a good thing. It's, it's, it's it has been a, one of few good things this year. Yeah, there's been so many, so many great conversations. Maybe to get started, I should just list just a few of the episodes that we had this year that were the, the 10 most popular, just to kind of give you a taste of some of the conversations that we had this year. Excellent. Okay, let's start from the bottom. The 10th most popular episode this year was Empathy Deficit, which was a conversation with Emily Hunt-Turner, um, a, a friend in, and a colleague, I believe, of uh, Ken's in Minneapolis. Really, really great conversation. Number nine, Machines Don't Care, conversation about Exhibit Columbus's student-built structures. Exhibit Columbus was a pretty big, had a pretty big presence on the podcast last year, and it turned out to be a pretty exciting event, which was also followed up by a review, on-site review from you guys, Ken and Donna, which was very interesting, broken up into pieces on SoundCloud as well, so you can listen to reviews of each piece. Number eight on the list of most popular podcasts was Transborder Patrolling, a conversation about Tijuana with Rene Peralta and Orhan Ayuche, just to kind of clearly uh, define popular podcasts. These are the podcasts that were listened to the most through iTunes. Podcasts are also listened through Stitcher, Spotify now, they're on Spotify, and Google Play and all kinds of... but iTunes is still the most popular. So these were the most downloaded ones. Number seven on the list was Illuminating, a conversation with Jenny Sabine, winner of 2017's MoMA PS1 Young Architects Prize. Young Architects Prize. That's right. I was looking for that, what the P stood for. Number six on the list, How Not to Run a Club. That was a uh, very interesting conversation with Scott Frank, who was the ex-senior director of media relations at the AIA. Uh, number five on the list was An American Story, a conversation with Phil Freelon. That, in, in many people's opinions, should be further up on the list. I think that number five doesn't give it justice. It was an amazing conversation with a really remarkable guy. So I think that anybody out there listening to this who hasn't listened to that episode in particular should go ahead and, and listen to that. Number four... In the most popular podcast of 2017 list was Bro, Do You Even Coin or Quan? Coin. 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 <laughs> Bro, Do You Even Coin? A conversation with McMansion Hell's Kate Wagner. Number three on the list was our uh, 100th episode with Stephen Hall. That was really, really amazing episode where we talked to Stephen about his work and also just about some personal stuff. It was a very pleasantly surprising conversation, just kind of showing a side to him that we're not usually uh, used to experiencing. And uh, number two on the list, Small Details Matter. And that was episode 101, where uh, Ken and Donna, you guys talk about the AIA National Convention this year. That was a very popular episode and uh, not without a little controversy and I think some well-deserved criticism. And number one, the most popular podcast of the year was The Big Abstract, our conversation with Morgan Neville, who was the director and producer of Abstract's Bjarke Ingels documentary, which is uh, debuted on Netflix this year. That one surprised me. That one surprised me. That'd be number one. 
And I mean, it was great. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Doesn't even in my list of like memorable ones. So I'm not quite sure why. And we didn't even mention that. I, did we ever mention that the the podcast was had a little bit of snippet of soundbite in, in that documentary? I don't even yes, remember we, we did. Did we mention that? Yes, we did. That was fun. I wonder if we got a bump from the movie world in that one. And and I'm I'm saying that because one of the highlights of my year was that the number two episode, Small Details Matter, about the AIA convention, Michael Beirut of Pentagram tweeted it and said, this is a good conversation about the AIA convention. So to me, that we got a bump from that, I'm sure, because he's huge and has a great, huge following. So that and I felt personally flattered by that, that he enjoyed our conversation about the AIA. But I, I wonder if on the Morgan Neville conversation, we got a, a bump from the movie people, you know, surely he put it out on social media. And, uh, I, you know, I think that when architects can talk about things that people who are not architects are interested in, they, we maybe we, uh, you know, maybe we get a bump from that. You know, Donna, that's a very nice thought. But after years of reviewing stats on Arconnect, I can confidently <laughs> say that the reason it was number one was because it had the words Bjarka Ingels in the title. <gasps> oh, of course. Duh. Dorp. Of course. Derp. I'm, I'm, I'm a total derp. Yeah. People love <laughs> whenever. Bjarka. Yeah. Whenever we have uh, Bjarka Ingels <laughs> or Zaha Hadid or Rem Koolhaas in the title of anything, it, it always gets a lot of attention. But I, I actually really enjoyed that episode quite a bit. And it's one of uh, it's one of the shows that I, I'm actually going to be sharing a couple clips from. That's why they call them star architects, right? Because they are the stars. <laughs> they, they get the attention. True. <laughs> What I really enjoyed about the Stephen Hall one was the thing that we can't talk about. <laughs> this is the only podcast that we actually have ever done where we've had a guest ask us to edit something out. And yeah. I'll leave it No, I love that. And, and yeah, and great. we can't say and we won't say what it was that we edited out, but it's the only time we've ever had someone say, you know what, can you remove that part? I don't want to include it. And we did. And, and and to be honest, he was. it was a great criticism. It was right. And I'm sure it, it does, you know, it does suck, but it just happened to hit a little too close to a relationship so that he just asked us to to have it removed. So that was a that was probably the only time that we've actually Well, and it was in the good intentions. I mean, thinking about just how media in general is right now, the fact that he didn't want to say something mean, that he wanted to keep things positive. Yeah. I, I think media could use a little more of that right now, frankly. So I was happy to edit that. Well, that little bit of what yeah, and Mr. Hall felt was a little mean. I was happy oh, well, to edit that out because it's what? it's just noise. It's just more noise. No, but you know what? <laughs> That's the funny thing you say that because I was cringing when he was talking about Trump and, and he was talking about China and, and how backwards this thinking was in this country and how forward thinking that China was. And he was really extremely critical. And I'm here. I was thinking the whole time when he was saying that stuff, I'm like, man, you're an international architect. You are a name and you are like dropping like serious shade on this president who's, and I forget if he was, yeah, he's barely in office and you were just dropping. And I was like, wow, that's pretty, that's bold. And I mean, th I think that the criticism was because of a personal relationship. So I think that was the thing that was really, I understood that from that standpoint, but it was interesting that that was the thing that he, he was more concerned about. So that he knows that we're a small community <laughs> and yeah. those kinds yeah. of things are, you know, when it comes from someone you respect and someone that you happen to be friends with, those things tend to hurt more. So I, I respect that, but it was, it was interesting. I thought the other, other podcast that was um, interesting from that standpoint was, and I just remember how horrible I felt 
um, when we were going through this with Emily. Do you remember what happened there? With Emily Hunt Turner yeah. talking about the uh, All Square, yeah, social justice in enterprise. Yeah, do you remember how she was so deeply involved in what uh, trying to, you know, trying to secure funding and trying to track down grants and stuff like that? That she was, I think she had just come in from a meeting that day and she was really distracted. And we were talking to her, and it was the only time where we've actually where I wasn't sure we were going to get through the podcast because remember she had the. She was, the train of thought was lost and it was just not going well. And she was really feeling pretty bad about it. Do you remember that at all? I remember her being frustrated that she couldn't quite find her words. Yes. Yeah. And for yeah. someone who's a lawyer and who is is able to generally argue their point very clearly, I think she did feel a little frustrated that oh, she it was, was. It uh, turned out to be a great, po- I mean, what was so great no, it was, was that it she was found so her path. Honest. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> and and uh, so I was, you know, I just remember you know, those small little things are the first time that we experienced the, those kinds of challenges, some of those challenges, but overall that every podcast that we, we've, that we did this past year, I thought was like, I'm like, I was looking at, I'm going, there isn't a real weak thing in any of these. I'm like, these are really, really good. And I didn't listen to any of them. So (laughs) since we brought up Stephen Hall, I want to plug a couple of things that I loved what he said. And I guess we we have some clips we're going to add into this. So there's a point where, when he was talking about how terrible things are in the U.S. right now, and that the reason China is really interested in building green right now is because of common sense. And he just said it that clearly. It's like, well, it's common sense that that's the way you should build. I mean, he said, I think what a lot of people are aware of but are not willing to admit, which is that the U.S. is not a leader right now. We are not leading in anything. China is building, you know, transit and green infrastructure and all kinds of things better than we are. Other countries are doing infrastructure and technological progress better than we are. We are not the world leader right now. And it's it's problematic to me. It's hugely problematic. So let's listen to what Stephen had to say about how that's going right now. We should be leading. We have the technology, the possibility of people like Elon Musk that have the drive and, the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and sort of the desire. But now we have blockage at the top, ignorance at the top. That's the saddest thing you can have, you know what I mean? But China, I think, will lead right now. So the other thing I loved about what Stephen talked about, and maybe when you get to be a certain status in the architecture world, you have clients more like this. But he talked about how important it is to have smart, engaged clients. And um, when he was working on his his concept, although, yeah, he used the word concept for the St. Ignatius Chapel in Seattle. He talked about how the client totally supported his idea and wouldn't let the project be dumbed down thanks to value engineering. So I really appreciated that he in that way, not only talked about how important it is to do good architecture that follows a concept, but also gave credit to the fact that we can only do our work when we have clients who have trust in us and believe in our ability to make good decisions. So it's a very uplifting clip, and I'd like to listen to it. See, you say narrative, but I say there's the concept that drives the design. Sure, it's a story. But the story actually is how I've been able to achieve some pretty interesting buildings because, you know, the process of trying to build a building, everybody's trying to take things out. And in that case of Chapel of St. Ignatius, the uh, physical planning department said, okay, it's over budget. Let's take out three of the bottles. You know, we don't need them. <laughs> and the campus ministry said, absolutely not. Stephen's concept is seven bottles of light. There are seven days in the week. This is a central idea. And they supported me. And, you know, what's really exciting is today, you know, this Easter is coming up this weekend, and it's 20 years. It opened 20 years ago, 1997. They're having some kind of a 
celebration in May, but it was Easter. There was another thing that happened, and that was Father Sullivan, the contractor, comes with all these schedules and you know his you know kind of charts and things like this about building the building. And Father Sullivan pushed it across the table, and he said. It shall open on Easter. <laughs> <laughs> the voice from above. Yeah, they built it in 11 months, you know, and that's the way it should be. You have a great client, and the contractor was good, too, you know, and the building looks great. I was just there, like, last week. I wonder if he has had to fire anybody. This whole uh, spiel about uh, having great clients who trust you, and then I'm, like, thinking, I wonder if he's ever had to fire any clients. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, many architects have in their lives had to fire clients. It's not easy, but sometimes you really have to do it. <laughs> I fired my first. Um, yeah, you just did, right? Yeah. No, I, um, I've, I've loved Stephen Hall's work since uh, undergrad. Well, undergrad, since I was a first-year student. I think when I first found Anchoring, that book was pretty enlightening and and the use of narrative and he called it stories so use of storytelling and in weaving that together with architecture and his so i've always been a fan of uh, of his work and a sorely i think under considered as one of the premier american architects right now i think he's you know he's the the i think he's the starkitect's architect i think if you would poll all of the yeah. the big name yeah. architects i think they would rally around Stephen as probably the the one architect who probably doesn't get enough uh, get enough due, you know, from uh, the critics and alike because yeah. his work is there's a there's a sublime. It's you know it's uh, attentive to sight. It's uh, materiality. You know that Saint Ignatius Chapel is is probably one of the most important projects in the United States in the last twenty years that I could think of. It's really, I mean, having visited that project is and seen for you know and touched it with my own hands. I, I've I've seen you know what good architecture is. And he's just such a regular guy. I think that's part of why the the podcast was so popular is that he's just you know he just talks common sense. He talks he you know he does his thing. He does his work. He has deep poetic thoughts about the work, but when he talks about it, he can put it very clearly to people that it's just, this is the way we should be building things with respect for place, for climate, for humanity, for myth, for all of these things. I mean, he's, yeah, he's, he was great. It was really a pleasure to have that conversation with him. Yeah, that was, that was a real highlight of the year. Donna, do you have any other episodes that you want to uh, flashback to? Well, I will say that I, I, and I don't have really much specific about it, but possibly my favorite episode we've ever done was with Phil Freelon. And Phil Freelon is not someone who would be on most people's lips as a, you know, as a star architect or as a famous architect. He is an amazing practitioner, though, and I can't help but feel like, and this is, this is not, I'm sure this isn't real, but, you know, we had him on the podcast and then he's been, he's just been in the news a lot lately. And it's not because of us, but I love that we were able to grab him sort of, um, while he was really coming into public attention so much. He's an amazing architect. He's an amazing mentor. And we've learned that from many people. And I think despite going through the very difficult process of being an African American architect, early, you know, decades ago when it was even harder than it is now. He says that he's an optimist about the future, even with all the, the shit that has happened in 2017. He says that he's an optimist. And that's a little clip that I, I would like to listen to again. It's, it really is bizarre. Again, I, I'm just an optimist. And, and I think that the times we're living in today, maybe it'll wake people up because a lot of this has been there, just hasn't been on the surface. 
and, and if, if the awareness is heightened about you know the the struggles of the African Americans and and you know I think the struggling class in general if if we're illuminating that now by virtue of what's happening, then maybe that's that's the positive we can take away from it. No one flipped a switch and all of a sudden we have attitudes uh, that have changed. They've always been there. They're just on the surface now. So yeah, I think part of the reason that Phil is such a an optimist is that he is a mentor and that he's always been looking to the younger generation and trying to figure out how to not only make a legacy for himself, but to bring other people up into the, the positions that they can affect change as well. And I loved his his podcast because in part it was a little bit of a how-to for architects. Like this is how I started out as a young person setting out on my own, doing this work. And I think that all architects can really relate to that kind of professional journey, as well as ideas about how to focus on a certain kind of work and how to work closely with your clients to get the best possible project. So yeah, I'm, I'm really, really proud of that one. And the fact that he can maintain this optimism in light of his diagnosis of ALS too, which is, it's got to be one of the worst terminal illnesses that you can get. And and his graciousness, uh, you know, by by providing continued mentorship and and um, education to and and motivation to young architects is really admirable. That was the first podcast where I really did my did my homework, did a lot of homework on that one because I was so excited to have him on. And I, if I remember correctly, I kind of. I had a narrative arc that I was trying to weave through there and it worked out pretty well. So I was really one of my favorite ones. And, and, and I like to get him on one more time because I think he has more story to tell and I'd like to know, catch up and see how he's doing and, and see how he, you know, what he's doing now, you know, because that, that it's a, you know, it's a really serious, it's a degenerative disease. And I wonder if his uh, experiences with space have changed because of it. That would be an interesting podcast to have. Yeah. Yeah. That would be. Yeah. And speaking of the uh, the homework that you did, I mean, I was really proud of us, especially you guys uh, with that episode. And because he even remarked at, at how much we knew going into this conversation, you know, relative to most of the interviews that he's been offering. Yeah. Lately. Do you remember he, so, he, yeah. he gave us 30 minutes and we turned it into an hour. Yep. I mean, cause I think he was probably expecting the same kind of questions that he was always answering. And then we were pulling out stuff like he was talking about science fiction and, and how important yeah. that was to him. And it was great. I was like, this is awesome. Yeah. I mean, and that was that was the vision of this podcast that that I personally always had prior to to this podcast getting started was that, you know, it was going to be an opportunity for us to talk to architects about themselves and their inspirations and and stuff that that, you know, not just their work. If we can have a conversation with with a famous architect and then leave our listeners appreciating their work more by understanding them more as a person and understanding where their work is coming from at a human level. I, you know, I think, I think uh, we've done our job. And I think that with that episode in particular, we really were able to dig into that. Yeah, that was a really good one. And I, I you know, Ken, you did, you did so much homework on that and I did some homework as well. And um, I think that uh, it reminds me of a, a book I read this year, although it was, I think, written last year by Maria Semple, who wrote my favorite 
fictional architect ever, Bernadette, from the book Where'd You Go, Bernadette? But in her follow-up book, her, her her next book called Today Will Be Different, she has just this very simple notion, that this idea that manners are important and that manners can be just as simple as paying attention to someone, just actually giving them your attention. And I think we went into that Phil Freelon episode knowing that we were getting a short amount of time with a very important person with a lot of stories. And so we paid attention before we even got started. And uh it turned out to be really successful. All right. Any others before we move on, Donna? I will just mention that, uh, especially because of the Philly connection, Inga Saffron, our interview with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and architecture critic for the Philadelphia Inquirer, Inga Saffron, that was a great interview. And again, it felt very personal to me, especially because she talked about how buildings matter in people's daily lives. And that's something that she uh, she really tries to push in her column is that architecture affects people and they actually do have feelings about it because they go by it every day. And there's a little brief clip I wanted to, to listen to about how architecture affects people personally. That it's just a story about how important the team is and the project architect and the people we never mention in our stories. And I am guilty. <laughs> I am guilty <laughs> um, <laughs> of doing that because, you know, it's, as a writer, you know, and you, they give you a thousand words and, you know, if you put in 10 names, you've lost a paragraph. Right. So, and the engineers always complain and the, you know, the lighting designers. And, but if you mention everybody, you don't have any words left. So you do tend to focus on the person whose name is on the firm or, you know, you can just, sometimes you can just call it by the name of the firm and, and that's sort of more inclusive. But I think this is a big issue because I think because we do focus on the heroic single designer, the public doesn't understand how architecture is made, that it is a team effort, and that there are many, many decisions that impact the results. So yeah, Inga is one of the last remaining um, full-time architecture critics for a city newspaper, and um, uh, her voice is amazing, and she's so good that, that she really talks about architecture, not just as objects and sort of, you know, praising or or not praising the latest big building, but she's really talking about how buildings affect people's lives. And I think if I have to to try to figure out for the coming year how architects can be more relevant, I think reminding people that we really can affect how their day-to-day experience goes, that's an important aspect of design that is not about being a starchitect and is is more about just really working with people. So what did you guys think about the Inga conversation? Loved it. She was so great to talk to. You know, you never know architecture critics have this persona that's developed through their writing and it can often be quite stinging or, you know, so it's, it's whenever we talk to an architecture critic, I, I never know what to expect, but they usually end up being extremely fun people to talk to and very, very smart and, and gracious in their, their stories. Ken, tell us about your, uh, your your favorite episodes of the year? Well, we've we've hit a lot of hit a lot of them. Perhaps the one we haven't really talked about a lot um, is the small details matter. I think that one really kind of set for me the it. I got a lot of, out of this past conference at the Orlando, even though it was in a horrible city, um, not a city <laughs> I would really recommend. <laughs> but there was a lot there was a lot to take away from that experience, and I think there was. A, the examples that we talked about in the podcast about how blind leadership is to the little things, uh, the things that really mattered, really kind of were borne out in that episode. And I think really they extend forward. And um, 
you know, there was a tweet today about something. Oh, it was a, it was a photo. It was a photo. AIA National put out today a photo of uh, <laughs> Michelle Obama with um, with Bob Ivey and Tom Voynier at the conference this past uh, this past year. And um, we had a, we had Mark Miller on one of the podcasts, I believe. He pointed out there was an article um, in Curbed, I think, that these young architects who are um, many different races were talking about how the profession needed to move forward. And the date of that article was like February, 2017. Yeah. So, you know, it it just, it just shows that the the profession is, is loves. I think they're like the, when you talk about the elites in the profession, these are the people that we're talking about. The people that go to cocktail parties and get paid three quarters of a million dollars a year and pat each other on the back and say, what a good job we did because we got Michelle Obama to come to the conference. But yet you're just, you know, asking questions that they just turned around and had a conversation with an actual architect, yeah. <laughs> an actual <laughs> member, instead of talking to themselves in this, uh, they would find out that there's a lot of the, the you know, one of the, my predictions last year was that we need young people to get involved. Well, if they have talked oh, to any God, of these yes. young people in this article from February, they would have found out exactly what, what was necessary to move this profession forward. And I, I, I will say, I know this is my endless refrain, but I do think AIA is getting better, but it has happened more slowly this year than I would have hoped. Because I really do want to see lots of young people being more active, being involved, being on the national level. I think in that yeah. episode, you said young people look into running for national office. And um, yeah. I would love to see that happen. That would be great. Yeah. And, and I just, I really don't think you have to wait until you're a principal and, and get an FF to your name to right. run either. I think you can, right. I think you can start running right now. I think I'll vote for it. So I yeah. think, but that particular, not just the podcast, but the the event that we were talking about really kind of catalyzed uh, in me. And I think, interestingly enough, I don't know if you're having the same conversation in, in, uh, in Indy, Donna, but our chapter, our state chapter here has like, they are taking what they've learned from the national conference and they are actually, they have a plan of action around it. Um, so That's they, good. they, they are there. And I, I told, I told, um, you know, Mary Elizabeth, who's uh, our executive director, I said, you know, for the first time, I actually think I can be involved in this in some way that matters to me. <laughs> That's excellent. So they actually are, and I'm, you know, so hopefully we're going to try to make our effort at changing things and hopefully, and, and I know we're going to make mistakes because, you know, this chapter up here is awfully white, even though we we have our first African-American president of the uh, Minnesota AIA we're still going to make mistakes. So, but I'm, I'm going to try to head some of those off and get, get some of the right people to come. So good. What else? Honestly, um, you know, and it's because I'm still seeing this forward and, and, you know, listening back to that, po- I was listening back to that podcast. Cause I really, you know, I remember it and I really uh, care about Emily a lot. So listening to empathy deficit was a particularly good one. Cause I think it's, I think there's a lot in there that is local because it's dealing with what she's dealing with, but it's also a national issue because we're still going to be dealing with for the next three years, uh, Ben Carson, um, and what he's, uh, the changes he's affecting in HUD. So I think that was a particularly interesting podcast from that perspective. And, and, you know, Emily's still working on 
you know, getting this um, space constructed and still running down f- uh, financing and, and trying to get people to believe in her idea as much as she does. So I'm hoping. And we, I mean, we should, we should point out that Emily, if you haven't listened to the podcast, go listen to it, but it's Emily is, is opening a restaurant in which to use as a cult, uh, social enterprise through which formerly incarcerated people can learn job skills and become part, uh, you know, contributing members of society again. And she's helping them work through issues of not being able to get housing if you have a felony uh, conviction on your record and things like that. I will say, I don't know. Someone reached out to me a couple of weeks ago, just out of the blue, said they saw some comments I made on Arconnect. And this is someone who is finishing up their ARE work, AXP, I guess it's called now, and suddenly became aware that if they have a felony conviction in their past, they might not be able to get registered. And they reached out to ask me for advice. Um, And I sent this person to listen specifically to that podcast, because I think that, uh, you know, it's a serious issue that that architects are supposed to be about for humanity. We're supposed to be working with humans to house them, to shelter them, to allow them to access things in their daily lives. And if we're so, I mean, we all fill out that renewal form every year that says, have you committed a felony? Uh, You know, I think if someone's done something in their past and they're clearly on the right track, we need to be very open about helping people to not have one mistake from their past ruin them their lives. And I was actually thrilled that this young person reached out to me and said, you know, can I become an architect, do you think? And I sent this person to the resources that I could find. And one of them was that interview with Emily, in part just to say, look, there are people in the world who care about this, who aren't just going to say, well, fuck you, you had a felony in your past, you know, screw you, you're out of it. There's lots of people who care, who want things to get better. And um, yeah, I was I felt very proud at that point. That's awesome. You know, I think um, what I didn't realize until upon reflection when I knew we were going to be doing this particular podcast is how often the the Columbus exhibit Columbus came up in the podcast at least four times. Yeah. It was it was yeah, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that, so it put even you know greater emphasis on how much I enjoyed going to Indianapolis and going down to Columbus and visiting with Donna and actually, you know, walking through those projects. The student ones in particular, I thought the, you know, I think there were a couple of snoozers, you know, (laughs) in the- Snoozers uh, or losers? Well, losers. um, (laughs) Is that that a new word? (laughs) In the, in the, in the award ones. And I think it, it, it highlights an interesting dilemma, I think, that competition organizers have when- a built product is to be coming out of someone who's won something. So it's not the first time that that somebody's proposed something and the end result was absolutely horrid. <laughs> There's other examples of uh, of projects like that in the past, but I thought it was particularly interesting to see see the work and see what you know, see how things that I didn't think were going to work well actually worked tr- really really well. So yeah, that was that was a. That was another highlight for me. I, it, it puts me back in mind of, um, Paul, this is going way into the Wayback Machine, but there was a series on Arconnect years ago called Arconnect Travels. And Marlon Watson, is that right? Traveled around and visited buildings and spoke about and filmed his reactions to those buildings. I, I love the idea of being able to do more on-site live reactions to buildings and hearing from other people too. You know, what did you, when you went and saw this building, what did you think about? What did you notice? Yeah. That was a really fun uh, conversation. Yeah. And to talk to those students, I think, you know, we didn't get a lot of good recording out of that because I was, you know, still trying to 
trying yeah, to function technical with te- issues. Techn- <laughs> technical <laughs> issues, but you know, even just the conversations were still is no less interesting, um, even though it didn't work as well. Yeah. All right. So, Ken, you want to pick up with your next uh, your next one? I'll just say, you know, I think what I was the John Kerry was great. I mean, you know, talking with him about. Oh, um, yeah. He's amazing. He's yeah. so um, fiery. <laughs> I was so impressed by him. Well, I came away with this renewed kind of like sense that, you know, it was it was great because it wasn't too long after we did uh, the AIA. Well, well it might have been, but it was I still had the AIA conference fresh in my mind. So h- hearing him talking about dignity and, and, you know, me thinking that, you know, health, safety and welfare, welfare is such a such a kind of wishy-washy word. I wish we would get rid of it and just, you know, put dignity in its place because it, it to me, the welfare part, just some, ask any normal person on the street, what does that mean? What does welfare mean? Health, safety, and welfare. What does that mean? Put that in context for me. I think it's such a, just a horrible word now when you place it side by side with dignity. And so when he said yeah. dignity for me, I'm like, architecture can't be architecture unless it serves these three things. Health, mm-hmm. safety, and dignity. If, dignity. If, if so much better that way. If you can't say your building, it, it can be, is a dignified piece of work. Do the people in it feel like they are, do they have a sense of purpose? Do they feel like they're valued? I mean, there is so, that's such a great word. I, I would just, I'm not going to say health, safety, and welfare. When people ask me what I'm doing, I'm like health, safety, and dignity. That's what yeah. I'm interested in. So I, when he when he was on, it just it just lit a fire under my ass. I'm like, that's what I want to think about. <laughs> Those are the things that are interesting to me. Yeah. Um, so that was a great podcast. I think Jonathan Massey hearing what he wants to do at uh, Michigan was uh, was great. Inga, of course. What else? There's a lot of smart people in our profession. It was amazing talking to Jonathan Massey because yeah, he's just like a he's a savvy dude. And it was oh, just yeah. yeah. There's a and, lot of smart, interesting people in our profession. Yeah, and then she that he knows he knows Emily, you know. So there's this it was this great kind of weaving together of these, you know, the some very um close relationships that um were kind of helpful. And you know, and I I can't say enough about how great it was to have how exciting it was to have Kate on the podcast. I mean, she, <laughs> Kate she is, from she, McMansion hell. Yeah. I mean, she was pulling that podcast along. I'm like, wow, I'm going to follow this one. This is great. <laughs> Cause she was the really, she was the driving force in that podcast. So that was really good. Not to, not to plug another podcast. And I don't even remember now what it was called, but I tweeted about it. Um, she was on another podcast recently with, uh, I think a couple of millennials and it was even more like fun and hilarious and lots of swearing and lots of, it was hilarious. And I, yeah, I love that we had her on and she was so fun. And I feel like um, that was, I noticed that out of all of our podcasts last year, that was the episode that had the most comments on Archonnect where it's hosted on the sessions site. And um, I think people commented, it, it had double the next runner up of number of comments. It had 26 versus 13 for Stephen Hall. And I think that people love to talk about this sort of pop culture, you know, silly, fun aspects of architecture so much. We all take ourselves so seriously, which we need to, because there are serious issues we face. And as a profession, we need to deal with. But it was just like, that was just a breath of fresh air to talk with Kate and uh, and get her sort of snarky, fun attitude towards it all. Paul, I think you really liked that one too. Yeah, that was one of my favorite episodes of the year. It was just so funny. And she is just such a hilarious and smart blogger that is taking a, actually a pretty serious 
tragedy in in architecture these days, which is kind of the disnification of uh, of homes. And I, I love that she I love that she comes up with these terms for uh, different architectural features. And one of my favorites is uh, the lawyer foyer. That's so which, good. Which lawyer which kind of pains yeah, which kind of pains me to say because it is foyer. But you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll give her I'll give her a uh, well a pass some because people it just, say it it that just way. works so well. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm from Canada where we <laughs> yeah. got the French, the French uh, influence. But um, so let's let's listen to a clip of her talking about the lawyer foyer. When it comes to these sort of signs and symbols, a lot of these are are cultural uh, phenomenons. So, for example, you know, the two story foyer, you know, I call it like the lawyer foyer, but I don't even the think it's like foyer. the <laughs> that's just alliterative. I mean, I think that yeah. so it's like easy to remember. But really, I think that the the two story entrance comes from banks from this sort of it's codified it's sort of architecturally codified this language of money if you've gone into any sort of high power institution whether you walk into the ground floor of some skyscraper or if you go you walk into you know maybe a student union if you walk into a you know a bank or a law firm for example you're going to have these tall dramatic entryways and it's a, it's a symbol of both wealth and power that are, that people were very eager to apply to their own homes because it was easy for them to do so all right. So later in that conversation with Kate, Ken brought up this really interesting idea of giving um, McMansions a uh, gastric bypass procedures, which I thought was was really a fascinating concept. And that brought up a whole, you know, the whole uh, topic of the kind of the fraudulent nature of McMansions. So um, in Kate's response to that, she she kind of gave this great summary of of how McMansions are really just a fraud, specifically based on this kind of removal of labor from the traditional historic mansion typology. So uh, let's let's take a listen to that clip. So the, you look at like authentic mansions throughout the entirety of history, whether you're looking at Versailles, whether you're looking at Biltmore, those mansions are so huge because they had a whole staff to manage them. People had live-in servants and, you know, it's so funny. So like there's this, you know, this myth of the shrinking house, right? That in the 20th century, everybody's houses got really small. That's stupid. For the working and middle class, their houses got significantly larger because industrialization brought them the ability to build houses without having to spend as much and to do it more efficiently. But for the wealthy and the upper middle class, their houses shrunk because the labor that was live in moved out. So the only the houses of like the elites shrunk during the 20th century rather than everybody else's house shrinking. And I think that, you know, you go through architectural history and it's like, oh yeah, here's the craftsman, here's you know, the modern houses. And you're like, oh, what? what is all this minimal traditional? Why is it so tiny, you know? And it does look so startling because minimal traditional was like the first cohesive style that wasn't an elite style that was included in architectural guides. But getting beside the point, the thing that's so funny is that with the McMansions, there's this really interesting relationship with labor that I think you know, is just fascinating. So for example, so the way that, you know, why that, that sort of quality, right? That quality of mansions that make them seem powerful, that make them seem permanent, that element is, is labor. When you have to move like so much stone, you have to do so much masonry, you have to apply so much stucco, you have to build a house of such a large size. It's implied that the, the amount of labor needed to do that is a lot and it's an arduous task to do it. Not only that, but it's implied that a whole task or a whole team of laborers not only worked on the house, but live inside of it as servants. 
So there is this 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 sort of interesting symbolism of not only just capital, but human capital. And I think that, you know, McMansions are so funny because they skimp around that. So much of uh, the the sort of extreme wealth aesthetic that they try and cultivate is so empty when you don't have the labor element of it. And I think that Edmund Burke was the first one to talk about, about, you know, the codification of labor as part of being the sublime. I think he used Stonehenge as his example, but it's, you know, it just takes so much mass. It takes so much energy to move these stones. And that's why they're powerful to us. It's not the actual arrangement of it. It's like, how did they do it? And for, to some extent, skyscrapers or any other, you know, large and uh, engineering heavy kinds of architecture make us feel the same way. And it's, it's the same thing with mansions. Someone had to work on every detail of that. Like they paid for every single banister, every single cornice was paid for and someone had to do it. And with the mansions, it's like you just don't get that because, you know, it's not true. You know, you know that like a team of laborers, yeah, come they come and build every house, but it's not a time consuming building process because, of course, it wasn't because these houses were built speculatively as fast as possible yeah. to sell while the market <laughs> was ridiculous. Going beside that, there's also things, you know, that are just divorced from labor on the interiors that people don't really think about. So, for example, like the big chandeliers in the in the foyers are so interesting because you know, the chandelier in general had to be lit every single day by a team of laborers and had to be put out at night by a team of laborers. And now it just sits up there as like electric lights and they have to, you know, just, you know, just turn it off. Do they ever turn the <laughs> chandelier on? I don't know. I've never seen a chandelier in a lawyer foyer ever turned on. <laughs> I told, All right. I totally so, forgot about that. That so was such funny. a great so on funny. point. <laughs> she she really i mean that that episode is so good just for because whenever i bring up the term mcmansion to people outside of the architecture industry everybody's just kind of like immediately lights up and it's like oh what's a mcmansion you know yeah. if they haven't heard the term before and i feel like she just gives such a perfect description of what a mcmansion is i mean she does in her blog but this podcast really kind of nails it and um it's hard to to listen to that episode without having a full understanding of the term mcmansion and and the uh and the problems with that whole movement in in architecture and she so and it's really seriously fun. educational too i mean she really is a uh, knowledgeable it's not just a you know a dumb whatever a dumb joke website that makes memes it's she's super knowledgeable she topic. is. And she's not even an architect or even an architecture student. She's studying uh, music and acoustics. Acoustics. Yep. One of my other favorite episodes this year, which we brought up earlier in the year, and I know that, you, Ken, you and I kind of disagree on this, but which, I mean, it may be a little bit biased because Morgan is a, a friend, but we spoke with Morgan Neville, who is an acclaimed documentary filmmaker. He has made many documentaries, mostly on musicians, uh, most notably 20 Feet from Stardom, which is his Academy Award-winning documentary about backup singers. But he also produced a series for Netflix this year called Abstract, and he directed two of those episodes, one of them being on uh, Bjarke Ingels, which led us to invite him onto the podcast to talk about that. So the first clip that I'd like to share, Morgan discusses the importance of documentaries in bringing attention to the creators who form our environments and our lives, you know, these creators that are very often not in the case of Bjarka, but very often uncredited uh, or unknown to the average person. So let's take a listen to that. I find that fascinating. I mean, not I made that film. I Before that, I'd made a number of films about songwriters and producers. And, you know, I've made a lot of music films, but the idea of the, the act of creation has always been really 
fascinating to me. And um, once you get to the point where you're making films about rock stars and they're standing on a stage doing the same show every night, that's not interesting. Those stories all tend to become the same, a variation on the same story. You know, what is exciting to me are those things where you're surprised. I mean, 20 Feet from Stardom was a film that completely surprised me just because I, again, somebody had suggested, my producer had suggested to me that there was something interesting about backup singers. And I said, what? And he said, I have no idea. You have to figure that out. <laughs> and same thing. I went home, I Googled, you know, nobody had done a film about them. Nobody had written a book about them. I was like, okay, it's up to me again. You know, and I went out in the beginning and I interviewed 80 backup singers and did oral histories just to figure out what the hell the whole world was about. And I did that over three months and I came out of that and I said, OK, now I know how this whole world works and it's amazing and nobody's ever told this story. And so that that was exciting to me, in part because these are people who are doing incredibly creative work that is already in our lives, in our ears and our minds. And we have no idea who they are. You know, if I'm going to draw a parallel with abstract, you know, design not to oversimplify it, but it's people that create the world we live in who, in most every case, we have no idea who they are. And again, it's that paradigm shift that I love. You know, so many people came up to me after 20 Feet from Stardom and said, I listen to music differently now. I hear backup vocals everywhere. And I said that same thing happened to me working on the film. And I hope a little of that happens with abstract, that the more people start to actually think about design and think about somebody designed that concert and somebody designed these shoes and somebody designed this car, that you at least have an appreciation for all the thought that goes into everything we live with. So I'd like to play another clip from this episode. In this next clip, Morgan discusses how projects are really created by teams even when a single name is often credited. And so in this example, he specifically talks and focuses on the Serpentine Gallery by Bjarke Ingels Group and how this idea was really just kind of put forth by by Bjarke among a couple ideas and then executed entirely by his team. And he talks a little bit about the interesting dynamic within that team while they were filming the documentary, you know, and how the team members kind of own or, or not own the project themselves. Bjarke is on one extreme where, you know, he's got, I don't know how many employees he's up to now, but over 500 with major offices. And he's, you know, when you're an architect at that level, just like if you're anything at that level, you get more and more removed from the daily machinations of things and the real design detail. I even have dealt with that as a filmmaker. You know, it's hard to do all the research yourself and do all the drafting yourself when you're just too busy. And Bjarke's Certainly busy. So in terms of his team, he's, you know, I, I've i spent a bunch of time with many of his team members. And, you know, I think he's kind of in that position where he comes up with a couple of guiding principles, maybe some specific ideas, which he did in the Serpentine Gallery. He had a couple of specific ideas about what he wanted to do with it. And then he kind of hands it off and they come back. I wouldn't say they feel reticent to express their point of view but it's certainly not, they're not peers you know, that you see in that way that, you know, it's, it's his word is definitely the word. And I think part of it is that when they have him in a meeting like that, that's not something that happens every day. They get a meeting like that with him once a month to do a project like that. So it really is kind of what does he have to say? Let's get everything we can out of this meeting. And then, you know, we can debate it and argue about it in our own time. But 
you know, let's try and get uh, download his brain as much as we can. And so, I mean, just for people who haven't seen the episode, the, the part of one thing we wanted to do with the series in the beginning was be able to show design process and different designers and uh, different fields have different iteration times. So if you're making food or making a shirt or making any number of things, that can happen relatively quickly. If you're making a building, it usually happens incredibly slowly. So we got really lucky that when we started filming the episode, Bjarke was awarded the Serpentine Gallery pavilion in Hyde Park in, in London, which had to be completed in six months. So we actually were able to film an idea to an, complete a building in six months. All right. So that was uh, another interesting thing about this episode, which is not related to a clip, but, you know, I, as, as we mentioned earlier in this show and, and on that episode, they, they took, they did reference Arconnect a few times in this episode by taking clips from our podcast and clips from the website. I have to say, though, you know, it's been kind of nagging, nagging me for the last, you know, ever since I noticed this, we were never actually even informed by Netflix or Morgan that they were doing this. I, I don't know what the legal responsibility is, but it's it's amazing that I didn't even know that that Arconnect had been used. Yeah, as a, your voice, as a your voice in, I know, the, it, in the episode. It, it, wasn't it seems until like you I, should be getting residuals or something, right? Aren't well, you in L.A.? No, but, you know, at least, at least a request or at least a request. I think they did. I think they did credit us. But um, it was so weird because I, I was talking to somebody one day and they're like, oh, yeah, I heard your voice on a Netflix show. I was like, oh, I was thinking like they must be mistaking me for somebody yeah. else. Yeah. And then I found out a few days later it was it was very strange. Unfortunately, it was one of the sort of dumber comments that has come across our uh, our connect in the many, many years that people have been putting intelligent comments out there. It was just like a Bjarki sucks or something, right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think I think if they came to us uh, asking for this, I think that maybe it would have been better to kind of recommend maybe talking to us and, and maybe formulating some new ideas for the show. But anyways, it was it was nice to be a part of that. And and it was kind of it was fun to see. Uh, the Arconnect website on on a Netflix documentary, but I, I really enjoyed that show. Um, I know it's not. We we have had a number of filmmakers, including another filmmaker this year that created the Columbus Columbus the the film that um, I've been hearing. I've been seeing on a lot of top ten movies of the year lists. Coconata. That was a fun, a really fun episode as well. I loved that one and I loved the movie and I'm just as we're speaking looking to see if it's been put up for any Oscars or anything because I imagine it uh, it will be it's such a beautiful film I I loved it There is a a guy that creates kind of a supercut of all of his favorite films at the end of each year into one big just supercut that he edits with with music and and it is just absolutely stunning but he does feature columbus quite a quite a few times in this in this collection and it, it's a collection of movies both internationally international films domestic films big hollywood movies small independent features i will put a link to that because regardless i mean if you're a film lover it's it's a good one to spend uh, i think about 15 minutes watching and it was just beautiful talking, speaking with someone who appreciates architecture, but is not an architect. It, it, that was just, that was delightful to to get his take and his view on how, how the built world really does affect 
humans. That was a totally wonderful conversation. And the movie's great. But if you go see the movie and you haven't seen it, if you do see the movie, just quiet yourself before you go in because it's it's a quiet, slow film. And that's a beautiful thing if you're if you're in the mood to appreciate that. Mm -hmm. I liked how he also pulled off the freeway because he was talking to us while he was on the phone. And yeah. he was just sweating away in the in the Indiana in the Indiana heat. humidity in the heat exactly just sitting by the side of the freeway talking to us about his his work it was amazing yeah. such a good conversation well that's it for me I mean all there were so many great episodes this year and um, we had our first podcast with uh, three women of color architects yeah, mm-hmm. educators fantastic. and activists all in one podcast and, <laughs> and that that's was right. an important yeah. one because. Um, I wasn't available and Paul wasn't available and Ken put it, took it upon himself to take, invite these three very significant and wise voices and bring them together and talk about some very difficult challenges our profession faces. And it was a hard conversation, but I loved listening to it as someone with fresh ears, as most of our listeners listen to these things, not having any insight into what the conversation was or where it was going. Ken, you did a great job on that one. It was really good. Mm-hmm. It was a tough one. Yeah. Tough is usually good. Yeah, we got to do the hard work. And if I, you know, if I was going to say a, a make a prediction or not make a prediction, but sort of a resolution, I guess, more for this year, a couple of times the comment came up in various conversations over the year with with people that um, a lot of architecture is about the really non-sexy side of it. You know, the not the not the big star architects, not the big buildings, but the the quiet moments of architecture, the digging in with your clients to really find out what their needs are, the manage maintenance of infrastructure across our cities, the the building of of simple background transit and movement and community spaces that, you know, people think of architecture as this big, sexy Howard Rourke hero thing, but it's the non-sexy stuff that really, really matters. And um, I I hope that the trend continues in 2018, that paying attention to the unsexy stuff is, uh, is seen as a valuable contribution to the to the discipline. So I'm I'm all for quiet this year. That's my hope for 2018 is some some quiet and appreciation of the quiet in architecture. Ken, do you have a uh, prediction? <laughs> I'm trying. I've been trying to be optimistic about the future. <laughs> it's <I> think, hard. <laughs> it is, and I think. Well, I think I've been kind of preparing myself for 2018. I think uh, this is going to be an exciting and difficult year because I think um, it's going to take a, a lot of stamina on all of our parts to uh, get through through November um, and and change the the climate. I think architects are going to have to do more with less because I think a lot of what we do isn't sexy and it's serving um, people who have needs who are seen in the society. And I think that that's going to be more of a challenge because I think a lot of the resources are going to be redirected in other ways. So I think poor people are going to continue to hurt more as if you could get more blood from a stone. Um, So I think we're going to have to do a lot more with less. And I think, you know, the idea that we're going to that we're just going to sit on the sidelines and uh, take this shit is uh, going to have to change. Um, I think that at least in Minnesota, um, I know we don't have a, a large African American architecture population, but I think that they are going to lead the way. I think that uh, you're going to see a change in the profession going forward. I think leadership is going to change. I think that. Uh, yeah, I think there's some positives to take away, but I'm concerned that it's not going to be easy. Yeah, it isn't. It's hard work. 
It's non-sexy work. That's, yeah, we've got to keep at it. Paul, do you have any predictions for the year? You know, my predictions in the past few years have been pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty inaccurate. And <laughs> given the state of the world these days, I, you know, nothing is, nothing is uh, predictable these days. So um, it's totally not. I think I may wave. I don't know. I mean, today was our very first clip show. So maybe next year we're going to adopt a spunky young kid. <laughs> <laughs> follow you know following following the the playbook of uh 80 sitcoms um yeah yep. or i'm gonna get pregnant one or the other wow. yeah <laughs> yeah no i i don't know but you know speaking of predictions and speaking of the the future of the show what i would like to do is i'd like to make a call for requests from our listeners you know we i i We'd really love to hear more feedback from our listeners, and we'd like to hear about what you want us to talk about. I know that Mark Miller, who is one of the most thoughtful people in yeah. our in our discussion uh, forum and our Connect community, really, really great person on on the on the website, and who's also been on the podcast. He started a thread recently in our discussion forum basically calling for ideas for the podcast, uh, totally unsolicited by us, which, which was great. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to put a, a link in our, in the show notes back to that thread and see if we can get some more, some more good ideas, because, you know, we want to, we want to, uh, create shows that, that people are hungry to listen to. So I would like to uh, officially make that request. Definitely. We love the feedback. Even if it's criticism, we take it to heart. So please. And we've received a lot of really I great don't. feedback this year. Oh, no. <laughs> we all, all feedback is censored before, before sharing with Ken. So it's fine. You can, you can share your, your criticism. I used to care. <laughs> I, really did. I really used to care. Um, no, that's the thing about doing a podcast. You start to not care so much about what people say. But um, yeah, no, almost like 99% of our feedback has been great. And we really appreciate everybody who has, who has shared their feedback and shared their stories while listening to the show. We love that. And we hope to get more. Yeah. And there's a conference in uh, New York this year. So I have my hotel reservation already. Do you really? I do. Sweet. Got to get those cheap rates because it's New York, man. Jeez. <laughs> it's going to this. Oh, it's going to be an expensive trip. Oh, man. Yes. <laughs> It's going to be exciting. Well, maybe we can all do it together next next year. That'd be fun. All right, guys. I think that's it for 2017. Any all any right. final words? Just keep on keeping on, everyone. Oh, <laughs> let me see. Um, here's to less dotard. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> maybe this time next year we'll have a different person. Yes. Oh no, God! No, no, we, I don't know. No, I want to string the, him along. Oh, no, no, let's just let's let's just keep the Mueller investigations going for the next two years. <laughs> <laughs> All, All right. right. Well, we wish everybody out there listening to this a uh, happy holidays and a very happy new year. Best of luck to everyone in 2018, and uh, thank you so much for continuing to listen to our show. And uh, we look forward to bringing you more in 2018. So um, just to sign off now, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the podcast, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcConnect Sessions. And you can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. And if you enjoy the show, we would love for you to rate us and review us on iTunes. It helps a lot. All right, guys. Thanks. And we'll- Happy New Year. Happy 2018. Happy 2018. Talk to you guys next year. See you on the other side. Bye. Bye.